0: Welcome, here is this past Sunday sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. It is uh, so good to gather, to worship, and to dig into the Word of God together. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us for the first time in a while, um, a few weeks back we started a new series in the New Testament letter of Galatians. And uh, what we're reading is a letter of correction or concern to the churches in the first century province of Galatia in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. Uh, from the man who planted these very churches just a few years prior, known as the Apostle Paul. And what Paul was writing to correct was a a dangerous theological teaching that had infiltrated these early churches, which taught that any non-Jews who put their faith in Jesus Christ needed to become Jewish as well and follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And so Paul, who was a Jew himself, in fact, was a very militant Jew before he met Christ, was writing to say that the only requirement for salvation, whether one was Jewish or not, was faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And so Gentiles didn't need to follow Jewish law upon their conversion to Christ as long as they had put their faith in Jesus. And over these past uh, couple of weeks, we have heard Paul reiterate this message in, in a few different ways and defend himself along the way as it pertains to his authority, his message, and his company. And here in our text today, we hear Paul make his main argument regarding why this false belief is so dangerous and why the Galatians need to hold firm to a salvation with no strings attached. So would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue to read this together. We're going to read uh, chapter 2 from verse 14 to 21. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that you would teach us through it, that you would equip us, that you would challenge us, you would encourage us, and that we would come to know you better and ourselves better in light of what we read. things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get into what Paul is saying in this text, we need to remember the context of his words here. So at the end of last week's uh, passage, Paul recounted a visit by the Apostle Peter to the primary, primarily Gentile church in Antioch, and what Paul did in the last passage was point out, Paul's, or point out Peter's hypocrisy. He, he said that Peter began his visit associating completely with the Gentile Christians, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, and treating them like full brothers and sisters in the Lord. But his actions changed when when certain other Jews showed up traveling through from Jerusalem. And at that point, Peter adjusted his behavior and began to segregate himself from the Gentiles and spend his time exclusively with his fellow Jews. And uh, according to Paul, Peter's actions did two things. First, it communicated that the message of a two tiered Christianity, that, that Jewish Christians were primary because they followed the law, and Gentile Christians who didn't were somehow second class believers. And secondly, Peter's actions caused the other Jews to act in the same way, including Barnabas, who himself helped to start the church in Antioch, which further reinforced this cultural racial divide or hierarchy that, according to Paul, had no place in the Christian church. And so starting in verse 14, where we started today, Paul speaks up. Now, before we walk through Paul's words here, I do want to point out a translation discrepancy between some of the Bible translations that many of us are using. Uh, And the discrepancy is in relation to the quotation marks surrounding Paul's rebuke of Peter. So you can take a look in your copy of the scriptures to see where the quotation marks are. But in the ESV, uh, the NET, the KJV, and, and others, the quotation ends after verse 14. Insinuating that uh, that that the verses are, or what is said in verses 15 to 21 is Paul expanding on what he said to Peter to the Galatians. Well, in the NIV that we're reading from, and the New King James Version, among others, the quotation continues until the end of the passage, at the conclusion of verse 21, insinuating that Paul spoke this entire monologue to Peter and the rest of those present during this specific instance. Now, the reason for this discrepancy is that there there are no quotation marks in ancient Greek. And this text is particularly difficult to decipher if Paul is recounting having said all of this to Peter or if Paul is expanding on what he said to Peter with further comments in the letter for the Galatians' ears. And so while it doesn't make a significant difference to our understanding or application of this text, Paul may or may not have literally spoken all of this to Peter But it is likely that these words are at least a summary of how their conversation went down. And this conversation, no matter what translation you use, started at least with the words of verse 14, which say this. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a gentile and do not and not like a Jew how is it then that you force gentiles to follow Jewish customs that sounds like a significant call out doesn't it right he's pointing out the inconsistency between Peter's expectations of himself and his expectations of others can anyone relate to that he's simply calling Peter a hypocrite Right? And this is a big deal. But what exactly does Paul mean here when he says that Peter lives like a Gentile? Right? Certainly, Peter has been circumcised. He's followed the law his whole life. He celebrates Jewish holy days. How is he, of all people, living like a Gentile? Well, I wish that we had much more time this morning to dig in and read through an incredible account of God changing Paul's heart or Peter's heart towards the Gentiles in the 10th and 11th chapters in the book of Acts, but I will summarize it for us, and the summary of this account is as follows. A number of years earlier to what we're reading about, God had given Peter a vision And in this vision, Peter saw a bunch of unclean animals, those which were not kosher for Jews to eat. And then God, in the vision, told Peter to get up, kill, and eat. And when Peter responded that he would not eat what was impure or unclean, God said to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Right? And, and this vision appeared to him three times, with, which understandably confused him greatly. Well, as Peter was wondering what this vision meant, he was called on to go to the home of a, of a man named Cornelius and meet with several uh, God-fearing Gentiles. And it's in this moment that Peter understands the vision. He, he enters the home and he said to the Gentiles there, you... "...are well aware that it is is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean." And then he goes on to say, "...I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right." And as the text continues in Acts chapter 10, Peter stayed with them there to teach them and share the good news of Jesus with them. And upon hearing it, the Gentiles in the room were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter then baptized these Gentiles with water as he had countless Jews before them. Now here's the kicker. When news spread of this, what Peter was doing Peter was criticized and disparaged for even associating with the Gentiles, let alone baptizing them and inviting them into the family of God. So so this is a fight that Peter had been on the other side of. And Peter led the church through this conflict to an understanding that the good news was Uh, for Gentiles as well, and that for the Christian to eat with the Gentiles, to visit and associate with Gentiles, was not against the law of Christ. And from that point on, Peter freely associated with Gentile Christians, eating with them, staying with them, which was strictly prohibited by Jewish law, but to Peter was something he was free to do in Christ. And so, In our text today, it is all the more shocking to Paul when Peter, of all people who had fought this very battle himself, whom God had revealed that Gentiles were clean in Christ, would act in a way that contradicted not only what he said and what God revealed to him, but also the way that he himself had been living. Paul here is saying, Peter, if the law is so important to you, Why aren't you following it yourself? According to the law, you shouldn't even be here associating with Gentiles. So, so what gives? You're not living like a Jew. You're breaking the law yourself. And if you're going to draw a line between those following the law and those who aren't, you, Peter, would be on the side of the sinners. If you are not following Jewish customs, it is absurd that you would demand Gentiles to follow the law in order to be treated as legitimate. Peter, if you are legitimate, if you are a true believer, so then are your Gentile brothers and sisters. And then Paul goes on to say in verse, uh, verses 15 and 16. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And that church, that last statement, is the crux of the Christian faith. We cannot save ourselves. Turn to the person beside you and say, you cannot save yourself. No one will be saved by what they have done. There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation. By the works of the law, Paul says, no one will be justified. Right? Paul says here, as plain as day, we know that a person is not justified or saved by works, by what we can do. We have put our faith in the only one who can save, Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. If you remember how Paul opened his his letter in chapter one, this is how he outlined it. He said, this is the gospel. Through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, graciously forgiving our sins and inviting us into a relationship of peace with him to the glory of God the Father. That is it. It is by God's grace, by God's initiative, by God's action and for God's purposes that we are saved And Paul is saying here that we are delusional if we think that our measly efforts are somehow counted as a part of our salvation, or that there is more to the story, more to the equation than what God has done. Church, our actions do not and cannot save us. The action of Jesus and Jesus alone is what gives us eternal life. And the scriptures are unanimous in teaching how useless our own action is in making us righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Philippians 3, 8, uh, Paul says, I consider my acts of righteousness as garbage. Like he says, the, the actual translation is rubbish, right? It's garbage. John 15, 5, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And Paul has come to know this. And Peter has come to know this. And all the Jews who have given their lives to Christ have come to know this. They have all put their faith in Jesus for salvation because they've come to realize that the law does not save. And we know this because if any of them believed that salvation came from following the law, they never would have trusted in Jesus. They would have continued to live by the law, earning their righteousness as they had long before Jesus came. And so Paul is saying that of all people, Jews who have trusted in Jesus ought to know how powerless the law is to save anyone. And if the law cannot save, then it must be Jesus who saves and Jesus alone here, uh, Paul moves on to make a very difficult statement to understand, which is likely aimed at some sort of counter argument from the Judaizers that had been posed or presented along the way. Uh, verse 17 says But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. So it looks like Paul is responding to something. So so what is it that Paul is refuting here? Uh, Commentator F.F. Bruce uh, says this, which I think is helpful. He says, in the argument of Paul's opponents, if law-abiding Jews had now to be reckoned as sinners, just like those who lived without the law, then the number of sinners in the world was substantially increased. And so, as they understood Paul's position, Christ was made a servant or an agent of sin. So, there must have been a philosophical argument at the time saying that if Jews were to abandon the law and declare themselves to be sinners because of Jesus, that means Jesus is the one increasing the sin in the world. There are more sinners because of this gospel of Christ. Or worse yet, that by abandoning the law, the Jews were being led to sin in ways they hadn't before by the influence of the gospel of Christ, which would in effect make Christ an agent of sin, right? But Paul responds simply, absolutely not. Uh, F.F. Bruce goes on to describe what Paul is countering this argument with. He says, The law-free gospel of justification by faith did not make them sinners for the first time. It simply revealed that they were already sinners, that they were included among the all who, as Paul puts it in Romans 3.23, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, the gospel of uh, freedom does not make sinners, like as was being argued. In fact, it's the law that did that, as Paul will unpack in chapter 3, verse 19. We'll get to that later. But rather, the gospel lets us know who we are already so that we could come to Jesus to be forgiven of our sin. Right, So Christ is not an agent of sin. He is the forgiver of sin, Paul argues, and frees Jews and Gentiles alike from the condemnation that comes from the law, which in one way or another we of all fallen short of. And Paul, in verse 18, he personalizes this saying that he cannot go back to teaching that salvation comes in any part by adherence to the law, as he had taught before he met Jesus, right? Christ had set him free from that false hope. And if he were to begin rebuilding a case for adherence to the law, then he would be trapping himself and others in what he already tore down, because it did not work. Verses 18 and 19, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. The sin, the real transgression would be to revert back to the law, Paul says, when God has provided freedom through his son on the cross. This would be akin to returning willingly to the jail cell that you've been freed from. And he says next, I have been freed from making myself holy through the law so that I might live for God. The the call of Christ in Paul's life is not for him to live simply for himself, working out his own salvation, but to live for Christ, focusing on God's work, knowing that salvation is already his through the cross. That's an interesting thought to ponder, isn't it? If we are in charge of our own salvation, we become self-centered, right, with our focus on ourselves and securing our own status as righteous rather than giving ourselves to what God has for us and has freed us up to do, right? Part of the freedom that comes from the cross is the freedom to fully give ourselves to the mission of God because we don't need to spend our time worrying about every misstep we make and working to balance the scales or pay penance for our errors, Evangelical author uh, Tullian Chivijan wrote about this, saying, Ironically, as Christians, when we focus mostly on our need to get better, we actually get worse. We become neurotic and self-absorbed. Preoccupation with our effort instead of with God's effort for us makes us increasingly self-centered and morbidly introspective. The cross sets us free from the law and sets us free to live for Christ as we begin to look past the end of our own noses and focus not on our own salvation but on the salvation of those who have yet to receive Jesus. Have you ever thought about that before? I'm fascinated by this idea that the gospel promise of my salvation, knowing the truth that I'm already set free, is what enables me to really live for Christ. Right? When I become confident with my own salvation, I am now in a place that I can focus on the needs of others and the expansion of the kingdom because my focus, my efforts are no longer simply on me. It's the same uh, concept as to why the theory of vaccinating frontline workers was so important in the COVID crisis, right? Because if the frontline workers were constantly concerned about protecting themselves it could limit their ability to help others. But once their immunization, their protection was secure, their focus could shift more completely uh, to those that they were caring for, right? Church, when we live in fear regarding our own salvation, wondering if we've done enough or done the right things, our efforts are all to that end to help tip the scales or to calm our own fears. But when we're confident in the grace of God for us, we are, as Paul said, free to live for God, focusing outward on joining his mission to the world. Paul uh, then goes on to write one of the most freeing verses in the New Testament, continuing with this same train of thought. In verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul died to the law, meaning that he died to that old way of life, that constant battle to tip the scales in the right way, and in Christ's death, that Paul, that Paul, died too. But as Christ rose from the dead to new life, Paul also entered into new life as well, a life that is fueled not by personal effort or holiness, but by the righteousness of Of Christ so for us that means that the daily grind to prove myself to God or to earn some sort of worthiness in God's sight that unwinnable game is over and it's been replaced with a life of freedom right life for a different purpose beyond living for self but rather living by faith and being empowered by Christ in us right if you have received Christ's gift of righteousness that that he would be righteous on your behalf, you can get off the treadmill. Stop that constant guilt and shame cycle. You can release the fear that you aren't good enough and instead embrace a new life of freedom. And that new life is not on your shoulders. In a few weeks, we're going to get into the fruit of the Spirit as Paul gets there in this letter. And Paul is going to talk about what the Christian life looks like when it's no longer us living, but Christ in us. The the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of things for us to do, the things that a Christian does. No, we are free to live out these things as Christ, by His Spirit, works them out in our lives. Right? My effort is replaced with his character when I die to myself and write, raised to new life with Christ as the engine. A little bit more on that in a few weeks. But today, Paul wraps up his thesis, his main argument by saying that if the law is what saves, even in part, then Christ's death was totally unnecessary. Christ didn't need to die. Verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And this is what I think is the fatal blow to the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers are not simply Jewish, right? These are not Pharisees or Sadducees that do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. These are Christians who have put their faith in Jesus and are simply trying to live out their newfound faith in light of their background in Judaism, which, just as an aside, leads me to remind us that while Paul doesn't speak very highly of them, we need to be a little bit gracious towards these individuals, Right? They are likely genuine believers in Jesus who are simply trying to figure out how to live out their Judaism in light of the fact that their anticipated Messiah had come. Right? I, I don't necessarily think they're malicious, but are wrestling with this new way of being. Right? Think about it from their perspective. Jesus didn't say that the law was abolished. Jesus didn't say that his new movement was no longer Jewish. No, he claimed to be the fulfillment of the Jewish promise, and these are Christians who have put their faith in him, struggling with what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live out the law. But Paul here challenges them in this struggle, saying that you can only be saved by one thing. You can only be saved by one thing. If Jesus isn't enough, then it's the law that really saves or if the law can't save, then salvation is through Jesus Christ. But it cannot be both. And so if you're holding on to the law or any piece of the law as a requirement for salvation, then there is no reason to put your faith in Christ. The cross means nothing if we must still be saved by following the law. If we must still do something else as well. All right? Paul is asking Does Jesus save or does adherence to the law save? There are only two options. Either you're saved by Christ or you're saved by yourself, but you cannot be saved by both. And church, we need to wrestle with that as well. Last week, we were encouraged and challenged to ask ourselves what we have added to the gospel as a requirement for salvation. And today, that question comes up again as it pertains to ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in besides Jesus to assure us that we are saved? And before we take offense to that suggestion, we need to remember that this is our natural condition. Self help is our default state. Uh, Tim Keller says about this he says, the, This is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self salvation extremely attractive, whether they're religious. Keep these rules and you'll earn eternal blessing or secular. Grab hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. The gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says, you are in such a helpless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. And then it says, God in Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase the gospel is counterintuitive to a culture that relies on self the gospel is incongruent with proud independent people which many of us aspire to be so with that said what are we leaning on or what are we tempted to lean on What of our own activity are we hoping in? What are we even in part bringing to the table in hopes of subsidizing the simple gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives? Is it service? Service to others? Service in the church? Sacrifice or self denial? This is what pushes us over the edge? Is it morality? Right? I'm a good person. I try to be nice. I don't drink, smoke, do drugs, have sex. I follow the Ten Commandments, so I must be good, right? Is it religious activity? I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I tithe. What is it that I am leaning on to provide for or even prove my salvation? Because if even 1% of it is found in something other than Christ alone then we are making the cross useless if it's true that anything else is necessary then Jesus did not need to die but church he did die which means that nothing else is necessary Jesus has paid it all I heard a story about a missionary family on furlough who was taken to Disney World by a family within their church who wanted to bless them with a free trip to Disney. In, in fact, they wanted to treat them to everything, hotel rooms, meals, tickets to the park, snacks, souvenirs, you name it. They wanted to pay for all of it so the family didn't spend a dime. But the family offering the trip told the missionary family that they had one condition and one condition only of this free trip. They said, if you pay for anything, you pay for everything. In other words, if you try to pull out your wallet at any point to pay for anything, then you're going to owe for everything. The family insisted that it was to be entirely their treat, or none of it would be their treat. And that simple condition had the effect of keeping the missionary family's wallets in their pockets. They never tried to pay for a thing, and in effect, their trip was entirely free. Now think what you want about this family's rule or condition, but they're right. If this missionary family paid for anything, it was no longer free. In order for it to be free, they needed to receive it completely. And church, that's the way salvation works. If it is a free gift from God, there can be nothing that we are on the hook to pay for. It's not a free gift if there's a cost, even if the cost is minuscule. As Romans 11:6 says, it is by grace. And if it is by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. You see, Jesus does not pay the bill in tandem with us. His death pays completely. So may we be people who put our wallets away who put our good deeds away and receive that which we cannot pay for. Because if we want to pay for something, if we want our works to count, to contribute, then we're on the hook for the whole thing. And friends, that is a debt that we cannot pay. The beautiful truth of the gospel, as we read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, is it is by grace, grace, We have been saved through faith. It is not a gift from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Thanks be to God that he paid for everything so that we don't need to pay for anything. Heavenly Father, we thank you For that simple truth of the gospel, it is 100% and 0%. But there's, for some reason, it's so hard for us to understand that simple math. And we always want to add ourselves to the equation. We want to help ourselves. We want to contribute to our salvation. But God, I pray that you would help us come to a place where we understand that we can't. There is nothing we can do but come to you in confidence, knowing that you have done everything. God, may we be people who understand what grace is and that we would live in the freedom that comes from being set free And that we would receive the free gift and what comes with it. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your gift. Help us be people who receive it completely. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.